we're kind of in the middle of a mini-series, and what we thought would be interesting is look at how Jesus fulfills what people in the Old Testament, during the time of the Old Testament, what they longed for. And so we're looking at three different things, that Jesus was a prophet, so we looked at last week, that he was God's mouthpiece. He, we're, today we're going to be looking at him being a priest, and the next uh, Friday night will be that he's king. And so today we're looking at how he is the long-expected priest. So what is a priest? Well, we talked about how a prophet is a mouthpiece. Well, a priest is simply somebody who helps others connect with God. I mean, it's very simple. And they do two primary things. The first thing they do is they teach. They help explain how to have a relationship with God. And then they do, in the Old Testament, this thing called uh, sacrifices, animal sacrifices. Now, we want to just spend a little bit of time talking about this. So they had these two job descriptions. The first was to teach about how to have a relationship with God. So that's really good. And then sometimes, if you haven't noticed, we don't always have a great relationship with God. And we do things that will break relationship with him and others. And so that's when this idea of animal sacrifice came in. That if you weren't following and obeying God, then there need to be this thing called forgiveness. And this was done through the sacrifice of an animal, typically a lamb or, uh, or a bull. But, uh, but there was an animal sacrifice that went on. Uh, this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, speaking about this. It says, Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now, I would like to focus on this for a little while because I think it's a, um, it's a largely misunderstood thing. So here's the kind of typical way that this gets described. We do things that God doesn't like, then he gets super mad at us, and then the only way to appease his anger is to kill something. And so often that's the way that we look at things in the Old Testament. God is super choked with the way that we behaved, and he's bloodthirsty. And so what he wants is he wants something to die to appease his wrath. That could be a way that we look at the Old Testament, and as we read about the animal sacrifices, we could say that maybe that's what's going on, is um, we serve a bloodthirsty God who demands payment, and somebody has to die. And so we always make sure that that happens. Is that what's going on? Is that what's going on in the Old Testament when we see these animal sacrifices? Well, I'd like to suggest to you, no, I don't think that that's what's happening. Here's what I think is going on when an animal is being sacrificed in the Old Testament. Two things, that it shows the cost of sin and the remedy of sin. Whenever an animal would die, God was showing to the people, this is what the cost of sin is. Alienation, separation. And so he gives a tangible picture in the sacrifice of an animal that this is what happens when you and I sin. It breaks relationship to the point of eternal separation from God. God's showing to the people in a very, very practical and graphic way, this is what happens to us as we participate in sin. So he shows the cost of sin, which is death and alienation. And then in that animal sacrifice shows the remedy of sin. Now, uh, this is just going to be one of those sermons that's a little bit more heady, but I hope that you'll find it interesting because I, I, I just love thinking about these things. Now, in the Old Testament, what blood is understood to be 
is life. When you, uh, when, you, when you look through the Bible and you look at how blood is described, it's not so much, I want a blood payment. Blood is understood to be life. So we sin and that brings death. And then the way that it gets remedied is life gets sprinkled and undoes the death of what sin produces. Blood is not so much a picture of, of, well, it is payment, but it's more than that. It's a cleansing through life. One thing brings death, our sin, and then an animal brings life and covers over, the fancy word is atone, covers over our sin and brings life. And this remedy of life bringing is always substitutionary. Now, this is what this means. This is a very hard thing for us to grab hold of, and we're going to spend a bit of time talking about it. Um, Somebody else is paying for our sin. Uh, In order for us to have life, somebody, a lamb, has to bring life into that moment, and they're the ones who undo our sin. Now, let's just talk about this for a minute. God, let's just think about our physical life for a minute. God designed our physical life to need something else to die so that we can live. So the reason why you and I are breathing right now is somebody died for us so that we could live. Isn't this an interesting thought? God designed the whole structure of human existence that is dependent upon animals and vegetables dying so that we could live. I think about uh, veganism. Now, some of you here might be vegans. And uh, if you're doing that for health reasons, great. But there's something... Uh, that there's, it's not about being vegan, it's about veganism or a fruitarian. Have you ever heard that term? Fruitarian is somebody who will only eat things that are already dead. So they won't pluck an apple from a tree, but when the, when the apple falls, then you, can, then you can eat it. They won't eat anything that's alive. Veganism is this idea that... Uh, I don't want something to die for me so that I can live. So I'm not going to eat animals. I don't think it's right that I get to live because something else dies. Now, I don't know about you, but there's an attraction to that, isn't there? It kind of makes sense. Why should an animal have to die? Do you love your hamburger? Love a good steak? Why should that animal have to die so that you can enjoy food and live? And so there's a, there's a school of thought that says we don't want that to happen. We're not going to participate in that. That's slaughter. That's murder. And I don't want anything to do with that. <clears throat> it's interesting, isn't it? Now, here I remember listening to a sermon 
uh, we had just joined Every Nation. Our church is a little over 20 years old. We had just joined Every Nation, and there was an Every Nation pastor in Nashville that preached a sermon on this topic, and I haven't forgotten it for 20 years. I forget most of my sermons. Uh, but this sermon stuck in my mind. And here's what he said. He talked about the food chain. And if you have a, uh, you know, you have a, you have a worm that gets eaten by a bird that gets eaten by a cat. And listen to what he said. I have, I, now, I don't know what you're going to think of this, but I just think this is super interesting, all right? Um, it is, oh, I don't even want to say it out loud because I could just picture how you could get upset. Anyways, this is the, uh, uh, it's honorable for a worm to get eaten by a bird. It's honorable. There's dignity in being consumed by something greater than you. It's your honor. So when we look at dying for someone else, that's just a cost. It's not an honor. Biblically, if we lay down our life, I mean, ultimately so, if we lay down our life for Jesus, that's honorable. He is, as we've sung tonight, he's King of kings and Lord of lords. And if we were to sacrifice for him to the point of death, that would be honorable for us. Can you see how that's true? I think you got to follow that one. But the food chain actually echoes that, that there is an honor to be consumed by something greater than you. It's a very interesting thought. And so we have these two um, opposing ideas that if something would consume us, that's horrible. Or if we would consume something, that's horrible. We shouldn't do that to them. And then we have this other thought that I don't think it's very, talked about very much in our society, that if you're actually consumed by something greater than you, that's to your honor. I've told this story a few times about um, uh, a number of years ago, Billy Graham came to Vancouver. And if you don't know who he is, he's probably the greatest evangelist in the in the history of the world. I mean, it's, it's incredible who he is. And an uh, incredibly godly man, uh, loved Jesus, loved the lost, loved the church. Very, very famous. And he was coming to do what was called back then a crusade, which was a, which was a huge um, event where thousands of people would come out, hear Billy Graham, and um, literally... Uh, Thousands of people would come to Christ. I remember sitting, I was way up in, a, what do you call where the Canucks used to play? In the Coliseum, thank you. It was in the Coliseum. And uh, I remember thinking, after he preached, I thought, oh, it's so sad. I guess he missed it this time, because it was quite boring from my perspective. And, uh, and he, you know, he preached his little thing. I thought, oh, that's too bad, because he usually does really well. And, uh, and then he says, if you'd like to come forward and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come forward now, and thousands of people come forward. I just had never seen anything. It was the power of God. It wasn't because somebody was a, was a clever communicator. He was anointed by God. It was amazing. Well, uh, before he did that crusade, he was speaking at Regent College, which is where I'm from, and I was the janitor. Those of you who know Kerry Hall at, Regent, at, at uh, UBC, I was a janitor at Kerry Hall. 
he was speaking there, and he's quite a tall guy. And so they wanted the pulpit to be five inches taller so that it didn't look awkward and he could read his notes properly. And get this, they asked me, I know, I know, it's amazing. They asked me to build a five-inch high stand under the pulpit that, yes, Billy Graham spoke from. <laughs> I know, I know, you're amazed. You can touch me later. I did that. I did that. I, I made the stand. I stained it. No, just shabby job. I stained that stand. And it was amazing. I want you to know that. Now, I, I mean, it's, it's just weird to talk this way, but follow the line of thought. I sacrificed my time for Billy Graham, and it was to my honor, right? I got to participate in, some, in, in, in serving somebody who was greater than me, and it was costly to me. I mean, it's barely costly, a couple hours. But nevertheless, I did that. The tree that made the stand that Billy Graham used sacrificed its life so that Billy Graham could have a stand for him to preach from. Now, and that is to the tree's honor. So a tree could die in the middle of the forest and it lived a good life or something. But a tree that died as a pulpit that Billy Graham spoke from, that's a cool tree. And that tree was participating in something that was greater than itself that brought it glory. Do you understand that? Is that does that make any sense to you? When we sacrifice, when creation sacrifices for something greater than itself, Glory is brought to the thing who uh, committed the sacrifice. <clears throat> I, think about, um, I think about indigenous people in their relationship with creation. And uh, we had a number of indigenous people in our, um, in our home, and they would describe in their culture what it was like um, to hunt. And when they would hunt an animal, they would thank the animal for sacrificing on their behalf that they might be able to live. Isn't that cool? Like it wasn't slaughter, it was thanksgiving and a recognition of the sacrifice in order that we could live. Honoring them for their sacrifice. Sacrifice has a level of nobility to it that maybe our culture doesn't value. And God would come and say that whoever sacrifices for another is to be the greatest of all. So sacrifice then is not only necessary to physically live. You and I are here because something some animal or vegetable sacrifice for us. I mean, I know it's a strange way to think, but it's true. Well, it's also true that the only way that you and I can spiritually live and have relationship with God is if someone sacrifices for us. The 
food chain is meant to be an example of something even more profound that was symbolized in the Old Testament through the sacrifice of a lamb that someone would have to sacrifice for us in order for us to have a living relationship with God. It's what was modeled. And this is what we see in the Old Testament, that the remedy to sin, we know the cost of sin is death, and the remedy of blood is someone spilling their blood, their life blood, that you and I could live. And this was demonstrated over and over and over again throughout Old Testament history, that every time an Israelite went to the temple, performed a sacrifice, they saw the cost of their sin, and they saw the, the, uh, the penalty of their sin, and they saw somebody, uh, an animal representing the solution to their alienation from God by spilling their blood so that that Israelite might live. They saw that performed over and over and over again. Here's what's interesting about it. In, 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 in Exodus chapter 12, there's the story of the first time this happened, and it's called the Passover. It's when Israel was in Egypt. They are going to be led out of slavery in Egypt into a land of their own, but uh, they're just as sinful as the Egyptians who are enslaving them. And so God instituted this thing called a Passover lamb that was going to die on their behalf to be cleansed of their sin so that they could then go and have life in the promised land. Now, there was very specific instructions given to that first lamb that was ever sacrificed for sin. It needed to be from your own family. And get this. The lamb needed to live with you in your house for two weeks. Why? Why would that be? Why do you need the lamb to live with you for two weeks before you kill it, spread its blood over the doorpost so that you'll be saved. Because this lamb was to be befriended and adored by the family. It wasn't just a farm animal. It was a family member. You can imagine, we have, uh, we have lots of puppies in our house at times. And, uh, you know, People come over and they play with a puppy, and you can't help but fall in love with a little puppy. I mean, it's just the cutest thing in the world, right? Well, imagine all the children in those homes playing with the lamb. It's their family pet. This isn't some cold-blooded slaughter of a farm animal. It's a family pet who is going to sacrifice its life so that you could live. And it took what could be considered a cold and heartless act, and it made it personal and intimate. It was a family pet. And you had to watch that family pet giving up its life so that you could live. This is profound. It's absolutely profound. Now, here's the problem with that whole thing. So that's, it's beautiful and significant, but there's one problem, and it's outlined in Hebrews 10, verse 11. Under the old covenant, covenant just means relationship. Under the old relationship, the Old Testament that we have in the Bible, before Jesus came, under the old covenant, the priest 
stands and ministers before the altar day after day, sacrificing animal after animal, day after day. Offering the same sacrifices again and again, get this, which can never take away sins. If we had more time, we would go into uh, multiple Old Testament references that talk about how God isn't looking for sacrifices. He's looking for a, a, a heart that's devoted to him. But the truth is, all of those lambs were a symbolic gesture that something more was required. There's no way that the blood of an animal can atone for the sin of a human. A human needs to do that in a special kind, one who could forgive all sins. So, so what is the solution? What does Jesus do? What did he do? that an animal sacrifice could not do. And it said in the very next verse, Hebrews 10, verse 12, but our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Because he's a man, he could die for man's sins. Because he's God, he could die for all of humanity's sins. Because he was the sinless lamb. This is absolutely incredible that what every sacrificial lamb was foreshadowing was the coming of the great lamb, the high priest who would sacrifice his life on our behalf. I'd like to make as quickly as I can four comments about this and I'll go as quickly as I can. Jesus is the kind of high priest. So we have high priests in the Old Testament. What they would do is they would take a lamb and slaughter it on your behalf. What we find in Jesus is Jesus is the lamb. The high priest isn't just performing a sacrifice. He's the sacrifice. Jesus is the high priest who dies for his people. He bears the cost in a way that the Old Testament priests never had to do. Can you imagine Christmas time? Um, somebody, uh, somebody comes up to you who's very, very dear to you. And they say, uh, they say, well, I got you a present this year. <clears throat> and, well, I actually didn't get it for you. I, uh, I asked a friend of mine to get it for you. And uh, I didn't actually, you know, pay for it. Uh, my friend paid for it. But here it is. Like, how would you feel about that? There's no cost on their behalf. And they just give you something that someone else did and they kind of take credit for it. Not super special, is it? But Jesus didn't just sacrifice a lamb. He was the lamb. He bore that cost within himself, and it's his life that is sprinkled over us to give us new life. That's a different kind of sacrifice. He's the high priest who dies for his people, number two. He, follow me now. He reverses the food chain. Jesus is the greater, dying for the lesser. Now, we all get how a worm is eaten by a bird who's eaten by a cat. We now have the cat dying for the worm. He reverses the food chain. He's the greater, dying for the lesser. In Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's nothing more radical that has ever been written. That the king actually dies for his subjects. That it's the king who actually bears the cost of relating to us. Nothing like this has ever been understood or ever been seen in the history of the world outside of Jesus Christ. That the greater dies for the lesser. And this is what we see in the sacrifice of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Number three, his flesh strengthens and his blood cleanses. Remember, we said that a priest does two things. A priest instructs you, helps you know how to follow God, and then when you don't succeed, offers a sacrifice. Remember those two things? Now, the first option is to help you succeed. But then if you don't, there's a sacrifice. Jesus does both of those. When we take communion, have you wondered why we have bread and juice? Why not just juice? Why not just the blood that forgives sins? Why don't we just do that? Why do we have his body as well? What does Jesus say? Unless you eat my, I mean, it's just such graphic terms. No wonder people left. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Why does he talk like that? Because he's the great high priest. And here's how he fulfills it. He says, my body is sustenance for you to succeed at loving me, having a relationship with me. If you feast on me, you'll have the strength, just like an animal, you feast on an animal, you get strength. If you feast on me, you then have strength to love me. That's my grace. My grace is given to you to enable you to love me. But you're not going to do that perfectly. So I'll also give you my blood. And my blood is going to cleanse you from all the times you fail at keeping a relationship with me. I'm going to complete our relationship by giving you the strength to love me and the forgiveness when you don't. Is there not a more beautiful sacrifice ever described? Jesus is beautiful in every way, and he is the ultimate high priest. Hebrews 4.16 says, after speaking about Jesus being our high priest, it says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy, the forgiveness of sins through the sprinkling of blood that brings life, that we may receive mercy and find grace, strength to help us in our time of need. Jesus is the fulfillment of our relationship with God, giving us what we can't earn but desperately need. And finally, and this is what Christ has given to us as a free gift and invites us to live in as his followers. Is this not revolutionary? This is revolutionary to the food chain, to typical evolution. God turns the whole thing upside down. And this is why we worship him as King of kings and Lord of lords, who is worthy of the ultimate glory because he performed the ultimate sacrifice. And it's our privilege to call him our Lord and our Savior. In conclusion, Matthew one twenty one says this, she will give birth to a son, Mary, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Wow. He will save us from our sins. Jesus saves us from both the power and the penalty of sin. 
the power of sin by eating his flesh, by receiving his grace, and the penalty of sin by drinking his blood, being sprinkled with the life of God that absorbs the cost of sin so that we can be restored to God. I'll just close with Jeremiah 7, verse 22 and 23. It says, when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, we're not going back to the Old Testament. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. The goal of God is always relationship. Well before any animal sacrifices came along, God had one thing in his heart, to have an intimate love relationship with you and I. That's his only agenda. There's never a subtext. He only has one agenda, to have a love relationship where you would trust him through obedience and you would receive his salvation. His goal is always relationship and his means is always Jesus. Always Jesus. Jesus is always the means to relationship. And he is the means to relationship with God and then gives us the command to then lay down our life for our brother as a model. He was our model so that we could have relationship with one another. And unless you and I grab hold of the cost of priesthood, Christianity will never really make sense. It won't make sense what Jesus did and it won't make sense what he's calling you to be as a kingdom of priests, Leviticus 26. But when when sacrifice gets redeemed, the whole thing gets profound. Worship team, come on up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus is our high priest, not who kills lambs over and over and over again because they can't take away the sins of humanity, but he was the one sacrifice for all, for all time. And so we thank you Oh, thank you. Just feel so inadequate. We adore you. We worship you. We're overwhelmed by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And so we glorify him as our Savior. We glorify him as the one who voluntarily chose to sprinkle our death with his life, absorbing the cost of sin so that we could be together with you forever. I ask this evening that we would receive afresh with great gratitude the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand and worship him together. Amen.